couple of quick uh, notes to make. Uh, if you're new to the church, welcome. As Pastor Scott said, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, I would love to do that right after the service. I'll be hanging out uh, right down here in the front. Also, if you are newer to the church, I want to let you know a special invitation. It's a, a, a kind of a smaller gathering that's going to take place actually next Sunday after the second service. Last year, we rolled out the future vision of the church. Three words, bigger, smaller, deeper. That captures the heartbeat of Illuminate. You're like, what's that all about? Come to this luncheon next week. Go to biggersmallerdeeper.com. You'll hear more about it. You'll hear all about where God has led us from the past, where we're at now, and where we believe God is leading us into the future. This is a very special time in the life of the church. And for those of you who are newer, we wanna help you get brought up to speed and then also prayerfully consider how you can participate with us uh, in the future. So that's that. Then, hey, by the way, um, this uh, the greatest event in all of human history, we're gonna celebrate in just a few weeks, our Easter services. We've got three on Easter Sunday, eight, 9.30 and 11. And just this last week, everybody, we added a fourth service and that's gonna be on Easter Eve at five o'clock. So we're gonna get something in your hands uh, next Sunday so you can hand your friends, family, relatives, coworkers, whoever God lays on your heart. So be praying about that uh, if you would, please, all right? So if you got your Bibles, we are in Genesis chapter 10. So here's where we're at. Uh, over the last several months, we've been opening up this ancient text and we've been blown away by how incredibly relevant it is to our own time, which makes sense because God is the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. In other words, he knows how life is to be lived best. Last week, we ended on a high note. Noah and his family, after a year being on that big boat, they step off. They step into completely different landscape. It's a new world. And Noah's first act is to build an altar and ascribe God the worth that he is due. In other words, he worshiped God. That's what it means to worship something. You ascribe ultimate worth. Noah recognizes that God did exactly what he said he was gonna do. And so he celebrates who God is. Great start, everybody, right? From the past, God said, I'm grieved. The main emotion from God is not one of anger, it's actually one of sadness when he sees that the earth had become a theater of violence because mankind had essentially done whatever he or she wanted. God says, we're gonna start over. There's a reboot with Noah and his family. Great things ahead, right? It's like humanity part two. Certainly we will learn from our mistakes in the past and do better, right? Spoiler alert, things go bad quickly. Soon after the waters are dried up, Noah and his family step up. We get this really weird incident that happens that reveals what God has known all along. In fact, listen to God's assessment of man's moral character, watch this now, after the flood, not before, but after the flood. We read it a couple of weeks ago. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, we talked about how this was a very carefully crafted sentence. Every intention 
of the thoughts of his heart, and the heart was the seat of intellect, emotion, and will. It described everything about you. Was only evil and all the time. After the flood, God's moral assessment of mankind hasn't changed. In other words, he knows what is to come. And it is, in fact, foreshadowing because Noah, the progenitor of the human race, part two, is about to have a really bad day. Genesis chapter nine, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? They were all married, three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They get off the boat. They're gonna start the human race over again. Then you get this, this parenthetical statement. We focus on one of the sons, his name is Ham. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, this is important because the author is about to set you up for some history, right? Things that have happened because of this man, Ham, and his descendants, particularly Canaan. Now, Canaan will become the father of the Canaanites, and the Canaanites are particularly rebellious toward God. In fact, this actually sets the stage for a big showdown that's gonna happen between the people of God and the Canaanites. So that's why you get this little parenthetical statement, like, hey, the author's saying, pay attention to this guy, Ham, because he's got a son by the name of Canaan. More on that later. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So this is really interesting. Shem becomes the father of the Shemites. You know them better as the Semitic people, the people who populated the Arab nations. Ham's descendants would settle in Africa and populate the African nations. Japheth, his descendants would settle in Euro-Asia. Okay, so after an introduction to the boys, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And as a result, he's laying uncovered, naked in his tent. Story's getting interesting. <laughs> and Ham, the father of Canaan, he looks at the nakedness of his dad. And then he tells his two brothers outside, Japheth and Shem. Now his brothers, as we're gonna see, they have a different response to this situation. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and they're walking backwards without looking to cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards. They did not see their father's Nakedness. So, <laughs> didn't take long. Uh, last week I said there are many parallels between Noah and Adam in a very real sense. Noah's kind of like a second Adam. Both men have a garden. Both men are tending the garden. And unfortunately, it's the fruit of the garden that corrupts both men. Noah gets drunk. Now, let's make it clear. If you condemn what the Bible doesn't condemn, that leads to what we call legalism, okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it say you should not drink, okay? What the Bible does condemn is drunkenness. 
Then it gives you the reason which makes perfect sense because you see, it's all about what's controlling you. That's a good question to ask, right? What is controlling you at any point in time? Because ultimately it's either someone or something of this world, or it's gonna be something that's not of this world that's controlling you. That's why it's very interesting because there's a contrast in control. And what the scripture says, be controlled believer by the spirit of God. Because what happens is if you drink too much alcohol, you're being controlled. So it makes sense, right? Paul in Ephesians chapter five says, and do not get drunk with wine, why? For that is debauchery, which means excessive indulgence, but be filled. That word filled can also be translated as controlled. Be controlled with the spirit. So right, too much alcohol in your body suppresses uh, inhibitions. It's like that country Western song, tequila makes her clothes fall off, right? I mean, <laughs> don't act like you don't karaoke that. So. Control, it's an issue of control, right? This is, this is really good. This is really, this makes perfect sense. Be controlled by the spirit of God. So Noah gets drunk, he's controlled by the alcohol and very often that leads to regret. No, this is really interesting language. You know, this like, um, he became uncovered, nakedness. Whenever these words are used together, very often it refers to something sexual. If you read Leviticus 18, that's the clear context there. Become naked and, and, uh, and uncovered, and that leads to a sexual relationship. Uh, so uh, it, it's interesting because some believe that Noah was in some way taken advantage of sexually, and Ham dis- discovers it and, and doesn't do anything either to prevent it or to stop it or in some way to restore his father's uh, dignity even though he's drunk. Uh, It probably won't surprise you to know, according to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, alcohol is a factor in 40% of all violent crimes and 37% of rapes and sexual assault. So I don't necessarily think this is the case. I don't think this is what's what's happening uh, with Noah. I think the clue in understanding what's happening is the difference in the brother's response. Because Ham sees his brother naked and what does he do? He immediately talks to his brothers about it. He he tells his brothers. The brothers respond by addressing the situation which Ham did not do. It's almost like Ham sees it and then he goes out and he says, you guys, you know, You'll never, you'll never guess what I saw, what, what, what happened with dad. Like he was drunk and he's naked and he's laying there and he's uncovered. And his brother's response is very different. Understand that even to this day in Eastern cultures, they're built off of honor. The last thing you want to have happen to you in an Eastern culture is to be shamed in any way. And back in the day, to uncover or to see the nakedness of a parent was dishonorable. Ham responds by telling his brothers, but his brothers respond by restoring their father's dignity, placing a garment over their shoulders, not looking, but walking backwards and then covering their father's 
nakedness. Now, Noah wakes up and he realizes something's happened. And then he finds out exactly what, what, what happens. Verse 24, when Noah woke up from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So what's interesting is that Noah speaks a curse, but who does he speak the curse upon? Not Ham, his son, but he speaks it upon his grandson, Canaan. Now you're like, wait, wait, wait a second. That doesn't seem very fair. What's up with this? Well, some people think that Canaan was present, even though the text doesn't explicitly say that. And so that's why Noah hands down a curse on Canaan, his grandson, Ham's son. I think this has more to do with Noah actually prophesying about future events. Canaan is mentioned throughout this narrative as a setup to what happens later when we read the life of Abraham and Joshua because the Canaanites become bitter enemies of God's people. The question is asked, where did all that come from? Where did that begin, the Canaanites? Well, it began right here, people. It began right here with the curse that was handed down. Now, certainly as a father on hand, this, this was not something that you would want for your child. And so the consequences fall on, on both of them. But this sets up a future conflict, confrontation between the Canaanites and the promised land that would be occupied by the Canaanites that God told his people, it's gonna be yours, right? So you're getting some good historical context for what we're going to read in the rest of the book, right? Chapter 10, verse one says, these are the, the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So here's what's gonna happen in chapter 10. It's really interesting. This is a list of names. It kind of reads like a genealogy. And so I said several weeks ago that when people read the list of names in, in uh, some of the key chapters in the book, they don't, they don't understand how important these genealogies are. They are extremely important in understanding what happens in the rest of the story. So in chapter 10, the question is, is asked and answered, how did people disperse? Like how did the nations come to be? And I'm talking about even the nations that we experience today. How did this all come to be a thing? Genesis chapter 10 actually answers that question. How was the earth populated after the flood? So what we're gonna get is a list of 70 names and the, and the, the number 70 becomes important in a, and I'll explain why in a moment, right? But these essentially, these names explain the various kingdoms that are spread out on the earth. So not only is it kind of like a genealogy, it's kind of a loose genealogy with brothers and cousins, but it's also, watch this now, an ethnographic map of the world. It's an ethnographic map describing different people groups and where they landed in different regions, even to this day. The main point of it is that all families have a common origin. All families on the earth come from the same family. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So in verses one through five, we read about Japheth, his seven sons and his seven grandsons. I mentioned 70 was important and prominent. Throughout this uh, narrative, this chapter, you're gonna see the word seven mentioned over and over. And again, I'll explain the significance of that in a second. 
becomes prominent here in, this, in the narrative. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then we find out who, a little bit more. We get some grandsons, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togmarth. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, look at this. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands. And each had their own language by their clans in their nation. So Japheth's sons, his, his descendants become the coastland people. Now what's really fascinating is that these people, these coastland people, we actually know them by these names. For example, we read about a man, Javan, we just read about him. That's the Hebrew word for Greece. Katim, that's the word for Italy that region of Cyprus. So as their names state, these are the people that populated the coast, okay? Now, after that, we get Ham's sons. Verse six, the sons of Ham are Cush, that's Ethiopia, Egypt, the Egyptians, put, don't know a lot about that guy, and Canaan is the Canaanites, okay? Straight up, don't know a lot about put, Canaan, the Canaanites. Then we get this list of Cush's sons in verse eight. Cush fathered Nimrod, pause. Then we get a little parenthetical statement an explanation about who Nimrod is. He's gonna become very important when we get to chapter 11 and I'll explain why. We're gonna come back to Nimrod, right? But here's what we read about him. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So this guy became so well known that when there were other guys who were like big and bad and they're hunters, like, that guy's like Nimrod. Again, this guy turns out to be pretty important as the story unfolds. We'll get to him in a minute. So next we read about Noah's uh, grandson, Canaan, and his descendants, right? right? Because there's something about this particular grandson that's gonna happen, right? Again, as we read the story of Abraham, Joshua, as the rest of the book of Genesis unfolds. But this is how the account wraps up in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, notice, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. That's the second time we, we read about these clans. They have their own nations. They have their own language, right? Then lastly, Noah's third son, Shem. He becomes the father of the Shemites, right? Or the Semites. Hey, by the way, the word uh, Shem is also the Hebrew word for name, which is super interesting because the Shemites become the Semites. And in this line, God does something really unique. He starts giving these people their names. Like for example, we're gonna read about this guy named Abram. God gives him a new name, Abraham. At some point we're gonna see this guy named Jacob, he's wrestling with God. And then God gives him a new name, Israel. So the word Shem means name, foreshadowing. There's a big difference between building a name for yourself and God giving you a name. More on that in a second, okay? So uh, as this continues to roll out, uh, we come to this, uh, this list of, well, let me just finish out. Verse 21, to Shem also is the father of all the children of Eber. By the way, Eber means Hebrew. So the sons of Eber are the Hebrews. Then we get all these sons and grandsons and the account wraps up with this in verse 31. This is the third time we're getting this. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So a list of 70 names, why 70? 70 is, uh, or seven is a number of completion, right? You know that God created in six days, on the seventh day, he rested. Now, if you want to explain a, um, a large act, right? On, uh, something that's done on a grand scale, you take seven and times it by 10, and that gives you 70, right? 70. 
Like for example, if you wanna describe the repopulation of the earth, then you're gonna use 70 names to describe this big event of completion. How is the earth completed and populated? Well, let me give you these 70 key names, all right? So that all makes sense. Um, if you wanna describe uh, something that's even bigger than that, then you take 70 and you times it by seven. This is what we see in the book of Daniel. When Jesus is told, when Jesus says, uh, is asked, well, how often should I forgive? What does he say? 70 times seven. Okay, so these are big, big numbers, right? You, you wanna fulfill, you wanna become a complete forgiver? Then let me just throw it at you like this, 70 times seven. And then back in the day, like, oh, okay, you're talking about something really, really big. That's Jesus' point. Yes, as often as you are, are offended, that says how often you are to forgive, right? So this is where the numbers come into play. Now, we come to chapter 11. And this is where you're kind of scratching your head because it doesn't make a lot of sense chronologically. Look at chapter 11 and verse one. Now the whole earth had, what does it say? One language and the same words. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. In chapter 10, we just read three times that there were many languages, many nations. And then you come to chapter 11 and it says, now there was only one language and one word. You're like, well, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, this is not in chronological order. The events of chapter 11 actually precede chapter 10. In terms of a timeline, it's not super tight, but I'll tell you this, it makes for great storytelling because here's the question. When Noah and his family steps off the boat, and they begin to populate the earth, why wouldn't they all have one language? What would cause them to separate and divide? What would cause them to go from one language to many languages? Well, chapter 11 explains. And as it turns out, there's a whole lot more to this story. Remember when I said we're gonna turn our attention back to that guy Nimrod? That's what we're gonna do now. This guy's super interesting key player. The Hebrew letters of his name spell the word rebel. Turns out this guy's pretty gnarly. He, uh, he is of the Geborim, which means he dis- he's a descendant from the Nephilim. If you remember, we read in chapter six, the Nephilim are these guys who are renowned, seem to be big and bad. Well, actually Nimrod is a descendant of the Nephilim, okay? Those of you who are achievers, all of us who are achievers, we have to bow down before Nimrod because he's the ultimate achiever. He built cities, he built kingdoms. For example, he built the city of Nineveh. Not only that, but he also built this other city in Babel. You know it as Babylon. So this guy's a real builder. This first city, in fact, would be the most significant, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. See, this is why you get that parenthetical statement in chapter 10, like, why do we need to know about Nimrod? Because he's gonna be a key player in helping you understand how things came to be. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. How did the earth go from one language to many languages? Verse two, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, made, and they had brick 
instead of stone. And they used bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So everybody is speaking the same language. They're in a very fertile land, land of Shinar. And then they discover this new technology, the brick. Bricks are pretty cool. This is why my favorite toy is the Lego. Because what can you do with the Lego, man? You can build stuff. See, if you're just stacking stones, you can only get something so high. But when you, when you discover the brick and you bake it and you make it hard, then you can build something significant. You can build something monumental, like, you know, like a tower. And they say, there's a risk that we might be scattered. We want to preserve our unity. So let's make a Shem for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's create a new humanity that will be apart from God. We will build this tower that reaches the heavens. We don't need God to make a name for us. We will do it apart from God. Now, what's fascinating about this is that I've always sort of pictured this tower as a typical tower, right? But the Hebrew word, little he, literal Hebrew word for top, it is head, like human head. So this is interesting. Could it be that this tower is, is kind of more like this massive, colossal human figure, even with a human head? that reaches up to the sky. This is the same kind of language that's used, uh, you know, in Daniel's time when the king builds this towering image with a top, which is a head, that human figure. And by the way, that happens in the very same region here. He's the king of Babylon. It appears that they wanna create their own version of humanity, but without God in the picture. It's staggering how incredibly relevant this book is to our own times. It's stunning. The world would actually be in disbelief if it understood the richness of the biblical text. Have you heard of transhumanism? It's okay if you haven't. I'll explain it to you. How fun is it that you heard it from a preacher in church first? Transhumanism is man's attempt at forming a new humanity apart from God. It's the idea that as man progresses, most specifically through technology, what would it be like if we could hack human life? Everything's being hacked today in order to make it better. Hey, 
what would it be like if we could hack human life? So, uh, Dr. Yuval Harari is a top advisor at the World Economic Forum. He gave a message about what can happen when we hack and engineer human life. He says this, quote, it will not only be the greatest revolution in human history, but it will be the greatest revolution in biology since the beginning of life. For four billion years, all of life was subject to the laws of natural selection and organic biochemistry. But now all of that is about to change. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. This is super fascinating because they're actually capturing the language of creation. Let me read that to you again. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Oh, that's so interesting. So what are the processes of evolution? You have natural selection plus mutations times time equals everything that we see. Natural selection plus mutations times time. Time in and of itself is not an agent of change, by the way. It's simply time. Those three things together have produced everything according to the evolutionist theory. But now... Natural selection is being replaced by what? Science that is driven by intelligent design. What intelligent design are we talking about? He goes on and explains. Not the intelligent design of some God above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the design of our clouds the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud. These are the new driving forces of evolution. Fascinating. Is this not the language of the Tower of Babel? It's the same story in a modern context. The ancient people said, we will achieve a name for ourselves. We will progress in advance. By the way, unity is a great thing, but there will be no unity apart from the knowledge and understanding and foundation of God himself. They remove God from the equation. Blatantly, we see this, the same thing happening in our own time. So God has the final word in this exchange. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Ego fuels ego. Verse seven, come, let us go down. And there confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You wanna know how we got chapter 10 and the table of the nations and all these different groups separating and landing in different areas? Bam, this is it because man made an attempt to make a name for himself apart from the God that created man. And God said, we're not having it. He chooses not to destroy them. He chooses to confuse the language so that when they're trying to communicate and building, like, what are you doing? It sounds like you're babbling, you're babbling. That's Babylon. Once again, we see that humans are inherently broken and sinful as a result of the fall. 
Many today talk about unity, harmony, and achieving paradise, which are good things, noble things, some form of utopia, but they do it by human invention, science, technology, maybe even human governments. But we can see how these plans have not, nor will they ever work apart from the foundation of God himself. It's a revival of the same ideas that inspired the architects of Babel. It's the same story, but in a different time. And it's your life. It's your life. And it's, it's the story of my life. Because what happens is when we try to build our lives on anything apart from God, we are bankrupt, we are confused, we are left with heartache. Some of us are going down that road now and we're wondering, what's going on? The question is, where is God in your life? See, things started well for Noah, but they disintegrated quickly, in large part because Noah, <laughs> he didn't maintain the relational connectedness that he had the minute he stopped, stepped off the boat. And the consequences were such that it spread to his kids, his grandkids, future generations. And as we continue through the book of Genesis, if you don't understand chapter 10, you don't understand all the conflict that comes forth, including 11, 12, 13, 4, all the way through the book of Genesis. This is the heart of man. So you know what's really cool is that when a person gives their life to Christ and commits themselves to it, they take on this new identity. And that's literally what baptism means. It means to be identified with something. We're all baptized into something. There is something in your life that forms your primary identity. In our culture, we emphasize gender, we emphasize our ethnicity, race, we emphasize our wealth, uh, we, we emphasize our sex, we have <laughs> all the wrong things. And it becomes a very weak glue in your life. So it's pretty cool because we get to hear from some people now who will say, you know, you know, maybe I've tried some of that Tower of Babel lifestyle, but now with God, with God, this is my new destination. So Father, as we listen to the stories of these people and your work in their lives, I pray that you would remind us all of our own human tendency to establish ourselves apart from you. That is the source of our pain. We bring it on ourselves very often. We have an adversary that loves to fight against us, make us think he doesn't exist, he's won half the battle. But Lord, the scriptures make it clear. Father, I pray a special blessing over those whose good word and testimony we're gonna receive now. As always, in all things, for your glory and God's people said, amen. amen.